Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. I welcome you to our area of Yom Kippur service. As you all know, uh, the main theme of Yom Kippur, Yom Kippurim, uh, is repentance and atonement and turning from our sin and our self-centered life and turning back to the Lord. So I'd like to explore these themes with you tonight. And I'd like to do so by looking tonight at Sefer Yoel, also known as the Book of Joel uh, in the Hebrew Scriptures. But, but first, by way of introduction, uh, let me say this. You know, at certain times of history, there's been an acute, keen, humble, even emotional sensitivity to sin. You look at Ezra. Uh, at one point, he was so overwhelmed by his sin and the sin of God's people Israel that he simply falls on his face and weeps. He's unable even, even to lift his head before the Lord. You look at the, the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah. You see a time when God's people were simply listening to the word of God uh, being read to them, and that's all it took. They heard his word, and they were convicted of their sin, and they fell down on their face, and they wept before the Lord. They wept over their sin. And, th- and throughout the history of the body of Messiah, there were times uh, in a worship gathering when the conviction of sin, it would just suddenly uh, sweep across the entire congregation. And all the people would fall on their face and fall to their knees, weeping and grieving over their sin. Times when God would revive his people in a fresh way, where there was a clear demonstration of the power of his spirit moving in their midst. So we see those times. And then we also see times in history when God's people have been desensitized to sin, uh, dulled to sin, participating in religious activity, but never stopping and and pausing uh, to grasp their own depths of sin and to mourn over it. During these times of desensitivity to sin, uh, sin is treated casually, uh, worship is treated routinely. And, I, and as I look at the state of the body of Messiah in America today, and even in our own Messianic movement, I tragically see us much closer to that latter desensitivity than to the former. Uh, we often have a, a dangerous religious dullness to sin. Desensitivity, even. Uh, so, for example, we can sit for hours in front of the TV or a movie watching scenes of sexual immorality, listening to God's name being taken in vain, and it doesn't even register with us. Uh, And we gossip. I mean, we call it normal conversation. We let our eyes wander on the Internet, uh, and our minds wander in lust and in impurity, and we think, well, that's just the way men are in our day. Our dysfunctional marriages and our divorce rate in the body of Messiah, matches that of our secular culture. And we run after greed uh, and status and success and money, just like everybody else. And so we need to wake up. We need to pray that God will wake us up. 
We need to have our hearts pierced and to weep over our sin, to hate sin, to flee from it, to grieve over how we so often have offended God, the Holy One of Israel. At Chaim, on this Yom Kippur, the Lord is calling us to change our lackadaisical attitude towards sin and to truly hate it and despise it and renounce it and turn from it. No, to run from it. I want to be part of a covenant community where sin is not treated casually. It's kind, the Lord is calling us to be that kind of covenant community. Uh, Cornelius Plantinga wrote a classic book on sin called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. We'll put this on the overhead. He says this, uh, the awareness of sin, a deep awareness of disobedience, a painful confession of sin used to be our shadow. Believers hated sin. They feared it. That They fled from it. They grieved over it. God's people agonized over their sin. A man who lost his temper might wonder if he could still take communion. A woman who for years envied her more attractive and intelligent sister might wonder if that sin threatened her very salvation. That shadow has now dimmed. Nowadays, the accusation, oh, you've sinned, is often said with a grin, the tone that signals an inside joke. At one time, this accusation still had the power to jolt people. That's Chaim. I want us to be a covenant community that's jolted by sin. That sin would grieve our hearts. That we'd be broken over it. I want to be part of a revival among God's people. A revival where we see God's holiness in fresh ways. And we see our sin in grievous ways. Dr. David Martin Lloyd-Jones, he says this. He says, go and read about revivals from the beginning. Go and watch individuals from the beginning. Uh, This is invariably the first thing that happens to them. They begin to see what a terrible, appalling thing sin, thing, sin is in the sight of God. They temporarily even forget the state of the congregation, their own anguish. It's the thought of sin in the sight of God and how terrible it must be. He writes, never has there been a revival, but that some of the people, especially at the beginning, have had such visions of the holiness of God and the sinfulness of sin that they've scarcely known what to do with themselves. God, on this Yom Kippur, give us a vision of your holiness and of our own sinfulness. God, make us a people who are overwhelmed by the horror and the severity of our sin, and at the same time overwhelmed by the mercy of you, Yeshua, the Messiah, our Savior. And in this process, Lord, pour out your Spirit in power among us in a way that's unexplainable in the natural. Pour it out in the way that it can be seen by friends and families and classmates and then co-workers and the community around us. This is why we are called to fast on this day of Yom Kippur. And this is why I want to look at the book of Joel with you tonight. Because Joel prophesied at a time when the people of God were asleep in their sensitivity to sin. 
Their sin didn't bother them. And God brought judgment on them. He brought first an invasion of locusts uh, to devour the land. Uh, They swallowed up every plant, every vine, every tree and shrub, every fruit. Everything green in the land, gone. Utter desolation. And Joel says, this is a picture of the judgment from God. And and, and it's also a picture of a much greater judgment that's coming, he says. And then he talks about what's known as the day of the Lord. Five times in the first three chapters, the prophet Joel mentions the day of the Lord. So, for example, Joel 1.15. Alas for that day, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. Joel 2 verse 1. Blow the shofar in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. It's close at hand. You know, I want us to note, you know, this is often sung as a praise song, right? Blow the shofar in Zion. But in the context here, it's actually talking about destruction and judgment. It's not a praise song. Joel 2.11. The Lord thunders at the head of his army. His forces are beyond number, and mighty is the army that obeys his command. The day of the Lord is great. It's dreadful. Who can endure it? Joel 2.31. The sun be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Joel 3.14. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. We see the day of the Lord not only mentioned not only here in Joel, but, but throughout the prophets. Now, sometimes the prophets, they're referring to a present judgment from God, uh, like a locust invasion. But always they're, they're pressing into a deeper picture, uh, a picture of more severe, catastrophic judgment that's going to come in the future. And the picture is twofold. The day of the Lord is first a day of destruction for the resistant. For those who resist God and remain in their sin, this is a day of utter horrifying destruction. The imagery in the book of Joel is thick with these locusts, uh, who as a picture is a symbol of the coming judgment of God. Uh, This judgment includes judgment on the people of God, on God's people. In Joel 1 and 2, it's on the nation of Judah, of of Yehuda, Judea, the people of God, uh, and on the judgment that they would experience in this locust plague. Then you get to chapter 3, and you see the judgment on all the nations. Look at Joel 3, uh, beginning in verse 2. The Lord says, I'll gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, which in Hebrew is the valley of the Lord's judgment. They will enter into judgment against them concerning my inheritance, my people Israel. For they scattered my people among the nations, and they divided up my land. Note God's judgment on anyone who divides his land. Let the nations be roused. Let them advance into the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit in judgment. I will sit to judge all the nations on every side. Swing the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, trample the grapes, for the winepress is full and the vats overflow. So great is their wickedness. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. 
Now, many preachers use this text about the value of decision to talk about evangelism. But if you see, as you see here, that's not what this verse, this, this passage is talking about at all. It's talking about a day when multitudes, masses of people from the ends of the earth, from all the goyim, all the nations, will be gathered together in this valley, and the decision will not be theirs anymore. Because they've already decided to resist God and to attack his chosen people, Israel. And the valley here is a valley of God's verdict upon them. And they will be destroyed. There will be eternal destruction for every man and woman who chooses to resist God and resist his mercy and his holiness and rebel against him. If you do that, the Bible says there will be a day when you will be brought to the valley of decision and the decision will not be yours anymore. The decision on that day will be executed by a holy God who is set that day to bring judgment on sin and sinners for all eternity. So this day of the Lord, it's a day of, put this in the overhead, it's a day of destruction for the resistant, but it's also a day of deliverance for the repentant. Look at Joel 3.16. The Lord roars from Zion, thunders from Yerushalayim. The earth from the heavens tremble. But the Lord will be a refuge for his people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. For those who repent and turn from their sin and turn to the Lord and trust in God and in his anointed, his Messiah, his son, Yeshua, he will be a refuge for them. And in the great and dreadful day of the Lord, Joel 2.32 says this, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls in the name of, of the Lord Yeshua in faith as Lord will be safe, will be rescued and delivered. And so the whole book of Joel is a call to repentance. And the way the Lord, speaking through Joel, calls his people to repentance is through a fast. They can get a great Yom Kippur passage. Look at Joel one fourteen. Declare a holy fast. Call a sacred assembly. Summon the elders and all who live in the land of the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Joel 2, verse 12. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And he relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing, a grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Declare a, a holy fast. Call a sacred assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the assembly. Bring together the elders and, and gather the children, even the nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride to her wedding chamber. Everyone is being gathered. The entire people of God are called to fast and pray and repent, even as we are called on this Yom Kippur. And so tonight begins a 24-hour period of fasting and intercession, of taking stock of our lives over this past year, of asking God for forgiveness, asking anyone else we've wronged or offended to forgive us, to make it right. Committing our lives to the Lord for this coming year. 
and asking the Lord uh, to inscribe us for a good year in his book of life. And most of all, realizing and agreeing that our atonement, our forgiveness on this day of atonement, comes only through the blood of the Lamb, the life, death, and resurrection of Yeshua the Messiah, who were sacrificed as God's final atonement on our behalf, uh, so that we can be forgiven and redeemed by trusting in him, and only by trusting in Yeshua and being written in the Lamb's book of life. And it's interesting that when the people of God were in a crisis and sought his face, one of the first things they would do is fast. Uh, It's on the overhead. In both the Hebrew Scriptures and the New Covenant Scriptures, fasting is an external expression among God's people of an internal reality. Fasting is, is abstaining from physical food for a spiritual purpose. Now, like any spiritual discipline that can become just a meaningless ritual, we need to be careful not to disconnect the external expression from the internal reality. Indeed, that's why God says in Joel 2.13, rend your heart and not your garments. You know, the custom in Israel was when you were overwhelmed with distress in a particularly serious or grievous uh, situation, you'd literally tear or rip your garments. It's a sign of that inner distress. What had happened is that it became, over time, a religious ritual. Right? People had just taken the external expression and disconnected it from the internal reality. So they would do this external act of rending their garments, but there's really no inner change of heart going on. So God's calling people to fast, but not just to abstain from food. Because you can outwardly fast and gain no spiritual benefit from it at all. So God is calling us today to something more. There's something deeper going on here. Ultimately, this is a heart issue. It's about what's going on in your heart. Now, that doesn't mean that we therefore ignore the external call to fast. No, uh, it is both and. It is not either or. Because these outward expressions, if done properly, are good things. Praying, studying the Bible, giving, fasting. Uh, They're all really good things as long as they're connected to our heart. So the picture is in fasting, and particularly in the kind of fast we see in the book of Joel, and the kind of fast that we are called to as as a covenant community, or are called to engage in on this Yom Kippur, it's a picture of humbling ourselves, saying no to our earthly, material, fleshly desires, uh, and focusing intently and intentionally on the Lord in prayer, in confession, in repentance, knowing that if we're in Messiah Yeshua, if we are covered by his blood, then 1 John 1, 9 promises us, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. The point is, when we fast with a right heart attitude, we're saying this, don't put it on the overhead, we're saying, more than I need food, God, I need your mercy. We as a people need to come together tonight and tomorrow and say, we grieve over our sin. We weep over it. And more than we need a meal, we need the mercy of God in Messiah Yeshua. We want God. More than our stomachs long for the pleasure of food, our souls long for you, Lord, your presence. More than we're hungry for food today, we're saying we are hungry for God. More than our stomachs crave food, our souls crave the Lord. 
We want to see the Lord Yeshua in His power and in His presence among us to renew us and revive us, His people, in new and fresh ways. And so we're putting aside food for the next 24 hours, and we're falling on our face, and we're saying, God, we need your mercy through the blood of the Lamb, the blood of Yeshua, to forgive us of our sins. We need your presence and your power. That's the fast that Joel called the people of Israel to. And that's the fast the Lord is calling us to today. A fast of repentance. That's what the whole book of Joel is about. Hear these words from Joel as if they are written to us. Joel 2 verse 12. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. With fasting and weeping and mourning, rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. And he relents from sending calamity. Who knows, he may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing, grain offerings and drink offerings to the Lord your God. The Lord says, turn and repent at time on this heir of Yom Kippur. What does this involve? Well, first of all, it involves confession. Put this on the overhead. It involves confession. Confession is acknowledging our sin and agreeing with God that it is sin. It involves acknowledging both our sin nature and our specific sins. All times and situations where we have not loved and worshipped and trusted and obeyed you, Lord. So we're called first to own up to our own ungodly thoughts and attitudes and intentions uh, and speech and deeds and to agree with God about our sin. We need to see our sin not according to our cultural norms or to see it as God sees it. Based on his word, based on his spirit's witness in our hearts. And since we are created to serve an infinite God, Our sin, our rebellion, is an infinite offense against him. The second aspect of repentance is is contrition, which is brokenness before the Lord over our sin. A godly sorrow over sin. A a weeping over sin. Listen to all the words Joel uses here. Weep, wail, lament, lament, wail, fasting with weeping and mourning. Over and over again in the book of Joel. How long has it been since you have wept over your sin? Joel exhorts us to rend our hearts. This is internal anguish uh, that, uh, that causes us to weep over our sin. John Scott, this famous, I'm sorry, John Stott, this famous theologian, he writes this. There are such things as tears from a believer, from a, believer, from a Yeshua follower, And too few of us ever weep them. A key part of biblical repentance is to be broken over sin, contrition. Leading to number three, which is conversion. uh, Meaning, turning from sin to God. So it exhorts us, return to the Lord. Change your direction. Transform your life. So, So to sum up, repentance involves confession, contrition, and conversion. And that as we repent, God relents. Look at Joel 2.13. Return to the Lord your God, for he's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. The whole picture we see here in the book of Joel 
The reason God sent Joel to them is because he desires to redeem the repentant. He does not leave us in our sin. He desires to redeem us. He calls us to repentance. Uh, He's brought you to this congregation that's climbed tonight, this heir of Yom Kippurim. Even in your sin, he has brought you here to bring you back to him. He has not left you alone uh, to wander or to wallow in your sin. No. He has brought you here tonight providentially to hear the Lord through the prophet Joel say, Repent. And when we do, through Yeshua, he promises to relent. Now, now what does it mean for God to relent? It means he rescues us from our sin. We'll put that on the overhead, please. God, to relent means he rescues us from our sin. Look at Joel 2.18. Then the Lord was jealous for his land, took pity on his people. He replied to them, I'm sending you grain, new wine, and, and olive oil, enough to satisfy you fully. Never again will I make you an object of scorn to the nations. I'll drive the northern horde from you, pushing it into a parched and barren land. Its eastern ranks will drown in the, de- in the Dead Sea. Its stench will go up. Its smell will rise. The Lord's saying, I'm going to remove all these invading armies from you. As we saw earlier in the book of Joel, those four armies were actually God's instrument of judgment. So when God rescues his people Israel, who is God rescuing them from? Ultimately, God is rescuing them from himself. From the judgment that he is pouring out on sin, on their sin. We need to be rescued from the payment, from the wages due our sin. Because the wages of sin is death. And God says, I will rescue you through my Messiah, Yeshua. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in the Messiah, Yeshua, our Lord. And so in Messiah, number one, God rescues us in the Messiah. Number two, he restores us. Uh, Look at Joel 2.21. Don't be afraid, land of Judah. Be glad and rejoice. Surely the Lord has done great things. For he's given you the autumn rains in righteousness. Now, literally in the Hebrew, this phrase actually says, he's given you the teacher of righteousness. He sends you abundant showers, both autumn and spring rains, which is a reference to the two comings of the teacher of righteousness, uh, the Messiah, in both the spring and the fall. I will pay for you the years the locust has destroyed. You'll have plenty to eat until you're full. And you praise the name of the Lord your God, who has worked wonders for you, And never again will my people be ashamed. When the Lord restores Israel, the land that was once rendered desolate now becomes fruitful. Everything that was brown becomes green. And the Lord says, I'll deal wondrously with you. I'll restore you. Uh, I'll heal your hurts. I'll bring salve to your sin-sick souls. So number one, God rescues us. Number two, he restores us. And then number three, ultimately, he resides with us. Look at Joel 2.27. Then you'll know that I'm in the midst of Israel, and I am the Lord your God. There is none else, and my people shall not be ashamed. We sing that song, don't we? God says he'll dwell with us in our midst, which will be fulfilled ultimately when Messiah returns to rule and reign under, over his worldwide kingdom from his divine throne in Jerusalem. This is the culmination of our salvation, reconciled to the presence of God. 
When sin entered the world way back in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3, what was the immediate and the disastrous effect? Separation from the presence of God. Cast out from the presence of God. What man once enjoyed in in unhindered beauty and, and communion with God was ripped apart. And everything since then is the effect of our sin and being separated from God's presence. Which will continue until Messiah returns to bring a new heaven and a new earth and establish his kingdom and sin will be gone. Hallelujah. And man and God will dwell together once again. Redemption is about being reconciled to the presence of God. Salvation is about being rescued from sin and death and brought into his presence. God's presence. Now, by the way, that's not the way salvation is often presented today, is it? Sadly, in many congregations today and among many TV preachers, salvation is kind of sold, if you will, as come to God and get all this great stuff, right? Come to God to get forgiveness. Come to God to get your ticket to heaven. Come to God to get your best life now, it's preached. Uh, Come to God for motivation and affirmation and prosperity and success and safety and abundance and health and wealth. Come to God, you'll get all these great things. No, that is not the gospel. That is a perversion of the gospel. We do not come to God to get stuff. We come to God to get God. He is the one we need. He is the one we want. And you can't have your best life now or anytime without God. You can't have anything without God. Everything flows from Him. He is the fountain from which life flows, from which everything flows. Thank you. So we want Him. We want Yeshua. And in fasting on Yom Kippur, we're saying, we want you, Lord Yeshua. Apart from you, Lord, we can do nothing. And so we put aside even our basic necessities of food, and we say, more than our bodies need food, our souls need you, Lord Yeshua. And what separates us from experiencing the satisfaction of the presence of God, what is it? It's our sin. Sin separates us from God. So repent. It's time on this air of Yom Kippur night. What could be more appropriate? The Lord is calling us to humble ourselves and to repent. To get your sin practices and your sin habits and your sin patterns of thought out of your life. And not because you got caught. And not because um, it might hurt you here in this life. Rather, repent and mourn and weep and grieve over your sin because it separates you from God. It keeps you from the Lord. It keeps you from the beauty and the joy and the delight and the wonder and the satisfaction that is found only in the Messiah Yeshua, our Lord. And that, and that, would lead, that, that is what leads us ultimately uh, to, to godly sorrow and to weeping over sin. Not when we say, uh, I better not do this uh, because uh, this and this and this because it's going to happen uh, or because of this effect. No. Our motive for repenting from sin and renouncing sin and turning from sin is simply because sin separates us from God. God says, when you repent, I will be with you. 
And Joel is pointing us toward the ultimate realities of the new covenant. How will God reside with us? He'll come to us in his son. Romans 10, verse 12. Note here that Paul is actually quoting from from Joel, chapter 2. Paul says, there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who come to him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, the context here in, in Romans 10 is that Paul has just gotten done saying that Yeshua is Lord. And that to be saved, uh, you must believe in your heart uh, and declare with your mouth that Yeshua is Lord. And so now Paul quotes Joel 2.32, 2, that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, actually in the Hebrew here, yud heh vav uh, Joel 2.32, everyone who calls upon yud heh vav will be saved. And Paul now equates that title, yud heh vav with Yeshua. So by quoting Joel 2.32 and applying it to Yeshua in Romans 10.13, Paul is confessing that Yeshua is the Lord, is yud heh in the flesh. And so the picture here is that God has come to us in the Messiah, Yeshua, God in the flesh. And he's gone to the cross to die to atone for our sins. Yeshua is the ultimate fulfillment of Yom Kippur. He is our once and for all Yom Kippur sacrifice. His death and resurrection provide atonement for our sins. There is no more temple. There are no more sacrifices because Yeshua is our final Yom Kippur sacrifice. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Yeshua had to die to atone for our sins while with his blood. And he's risen from the grave in victory over sin and hell and death and the grave. So that now all who trust in him can be forgiven of sin and reconciled to God. And Yeshua is the only means by which we can be reconciled to God. Because he came to save us from our sins. And therefore everyone who calls on the name of the Lord in the name of Yeshua, in faith, will be saved, will be rescued, will be safe in the presence of God. And if that's not good enough, second also, he'll live in us through his spirit. Acts 2, the day of Shavuot, 10 days after Yeshua's ascension back into heaven, he sends his Holy Spirit to immerse and to indwell and to empower his people. And Peter and the apostles, they receive this baptism, this immersion, this gift of the Holy Spirit. They start speaking in tongues and different languages. And tongues of fire are light upon them. And there's a sound like a, like a mighty rushing wind. And Jews from every nation are in Jerusalem at the temple to celebrate Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, a Pentecost. And they hear this commotion and they ask Peter, are you drunk? And Peter says, no, it's only 9 a.m., we're not drunk. <laughs> you want to know what's going on? What does Peter do? He quotes from Joel chapter 2 to explain what's going on. He says this in Acts 2.16. He says, this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your, Your old men will see visions. Your young men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. And I'll show wonders in the heavens above. And signs on the earth below, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is a picture of God residing among his people. 
through the infilling of the Spirit, the Spirit of Messiah. Through the immersion in the Holy Spirit, we're convicted of our sins, uh, we're drawn to faith in Yeshua, we are born again, uh, we, we, we're regenerated, we're, we're transformed from the inside out, and we're empowered to live for Yeshua and to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Through his Spirit, God brings revival. And so every man, woman, and child in this room who has repented and trusted in Yeshua for your salvation, the very presence of God now lives in you. The Spirit of Messiah lives in you. What does that mean? Look at Paul says, 1 Corinthians 6.18. He says, flee sexual immorality. All other sins people commit, commit outside their bodies. But those who sin sexually sin against their own bodies. Don't you know your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit? Here's the implication of God's Spirit dwelling within you. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit who's in you, whom you've received from God. You're not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your bodies. If you are a Yeshua follower, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. So how can you be satisfied with and complacent about your sin if the Spirit of God lives within you? Run from it. Flee from sin. For you are the Spirit of God living within you. And, the life and, 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 and life and death can't reside together. Darkness and light can't coexist. And so we're called tonight to weep over our sin and to flee anything that would rob you from the joy that's found in God's presence in you through his Spirit. And in the end, if we keep on trusting in Yeshua and following him and do not shrink back, the Lord promises to protect us and to be our stronghold. So look at Joel 3.16. The Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. The earth and the heavens will tremble. The Lord will be a refuge for his people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. Joel says it's coming the day when the Lord is going to roar from heaven and he'll bring an end to sin. And he'll bring judgment upon all sinners. But he'll be a refuge to his people and a stronghold to Israel. He'll be a stronghold to all who've taken refuge in Yeshua. And with the witness of the Holy Spirit dwelling within you, you can be confident of this. And as you continue to walk in his spirit, you will never be shaken. For all eternity he promises to keep you. And there's coming a day when you will be free from sin. And experience his presence in its fullness, face to face. And so weep and mourn and wail and grieve over and confess and repent of your sin. And be prepared for that glorious day to come, the great and terrible day, the great and awesome day of the Lord. So I want to invite you now in your own mind to just catalog your sin. Not being vague. Uh, but listing them specifically in your own mind as the Lord shows them to you, and then to confess and to mourn and to grieve over it, to truly repent of it and turn from it, from your self-centered focus, and turn to the Lord Yeshua, throwing yourself on his mercy through the blood of the final Yom Kippur sacrifice, the sacrificial atonement of Yeshua's death and resurrection on your behalf. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, because God made, for God made him, Yeshua, who knew no sin, to be sin, to be a sin offering for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So ask God to show you where you've not 
loved him, obeyed him, served him. Search your hearts. Rend your hearts. Grieve over where you have rebelled and transgressed and missed the mark, fallen short. Where you've been guilty of hate this past year, anger and resentment. Guilty of jealousy and envy. Guilty of greed and covetousness. Guilty of lying and deception and dishonesty. Guilty of lust and perversion and immorality. Guilty of addiction. Guilty of being unloving or unkind or unforgiving. Guilty of pride and arrogance. Guilty of vanity and judgmentalism. Guilty of anxiety and doubt and unbelief. Guilty of gossip and slander and Lashan Hara, the evil tongue. Guilty of theft. Guilty of violence. Guilty of putting anything or anyone above God as your number one loyalty and priority and commitment and, 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 and passion and motivation and love. And then as God reveals this to you, cry out to him with a heartfelt desire to turn from that and to be covered and cleansed and forgiven by the blood of Yeshua, the Messiah. And to turn back to God and to live holy for him with all your heart and mind and soul and strength. And if tonight you've never repented before and trusted in Yeshua, let this be that first moment. The most important moment when for the first time in your life you see your sin. And you agree with God about it. And see that he's loved you enough to send his son to die on the cross for you. And to cover over and atone for your sins. So that you can be rescued from the, from the judgment your sin deserves. And you can be restored to God uh, and, and, and reconciled back to him and live with him forever. And for all you people of God who, who know your, that you're your salvation in Yeshua and, and you see your sin tonight, see it for the horror that it is and confess and grieve over it and turn from it and turn back to the Lord. I counseled a believer recently who struggled, was struggling with, with sins and habits and practices, and he bristled at, the, at, at the, the need to change his lifestyle. And he, he told me, nothing is broken in my life, nothing needs fixing. But by the way, his lifestyle included partying and drinking and carousing and clubbing into the wee hours of the morning. And then finally, the Holy Spirit was pressing him and putting his finger on those unrepentant areas of his life where he refused to yield to God. And so now he's under conviction. But he's still continuing to resist the Holy Spirit. Why? Because it's an issue of repentance and surrender, and truly allowing Yeshua to be Lord, and dying to oneself and one's own desires. The problem with this guy is he had bought into the world's lie that he can't really enjoy life if he were to stop sinning and, and stop pursuing carnal fleshly pleasures. He honestly believed he would be miserable if he repented. But he failed to realize that if you repent and if you allow the Spirit of Messiah to work in you, he'll take away those desires to sin. Because God's grace changes your desires and empowers you to live for Messiah. That's what grace is, biblically. Grace is the supernatural ability and empowerment to live for the Lord. It's an inward transformation. That's the miracle of salvation. And once truly saved, 
Serving Yeshua becomes a great joy, becomes a delight. We'll put this on the overhead. The famous 19th century evangelist, American evangelist, Charles Finney. Many of you know him. Many of you like him a lot. Charles Finney, he said this. Christianity, or Yeshua faith, doesn't make a believer unhappy by keeping him away from the sinful things he loved. Because a believer has changed his opinion on those things. Repentance is a change of your will. A change of the choice of your soul. It's a conscious choice of your conscience to turn from your sin and to turn back to God. It's a choice to submit to the Lord regardless of your feelings or desires at the time. Because once you obey, your feelings and your desires will follow. And so this era of Yom Kippur, whether you are a Yeshua follower or not, my message to you is the same. Turn from your sin. Turn from yourself and turn to Yeshua. Amen. Let's stand and pray. Ask the music team to come on up, please. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. Lord, we come before you tonight on the Zero of Yom Kippur. And we thank you, Lord, uh, for our cleansing and forgiveness and new life that you give us freely in Messiah Yeshua. We thank you for the tremendous promises in your word. And if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So, Lord, tonight we confess before you as we fast and pray, uh, Lord, uh, that uh, more than we want food, Lord, we want you. We need your mercy. We confess and grieve and mourn over our sin. Lord, we turn from it, we flee from it, we turn back to you, we run into your arms, Yeshua. Your arms of mercy and love and rescue and reconciliation through your death and resurrection for us. Lord, Yeshua, more than our stomachs long for the pleasure of food, our souls long for your holy presence. More than we're hungry for food, we're hungry for more of you. More than our souls crave food, our our, our stomachs crave food, our souls crave you. Because you, Yeshua, are our King and our Lord and our Shepherd and our High Priest and our Yom Kippur Atonement and our Kinsman Redeemer and the Lover of our soul. Oh, Yeshua, we want to see your power and your presence among us. So, Lord, tonight renew us, revive us, Convict us where we fall short and then fail to live holy for you. We repent on this Yom Kippur, Lord, and we rend our hearts before you. We confess our sins, our rebellion. Lord, let our hearts be broken and contrite before you. Lord, help us to make a clean break with our sin and return to you to serve you fully. Serve you, Yeshua, and stop serving ourselves. So, Lord, tonight we die to self. And we take up our cross and we follow you. For it is in your name we pray. Hashem Yeshua. Amen. You don't have overheads for this. You can find the words pretty quickly. You're all I want. You're all I need. Everything.